again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. We are taught this week by lead teacher Randy Pope. Thank you for joining us today. Now I'm going to pray. And I want to ask God, I don't want this to be just a simple, okay, let's say we'll do our little prayer before we start. I want you to engage with me and let's talk to God about what we're about to do so that when we leave here, what's done is something he'd like to do. All right? Let's pray. Father, we pause now because we are awed to have the ear of our Creator and to know that you love us. Lord, we know that your love is the most important thing of all. And I know that some of us have got to be here this day, maybe hoping that there is a love relationship, but not convinced of it. And others of us that we know we're in love relationship, but but we we grieve the fact that our love is, seems to be diminished from what it used to be at some particular time where we were so enthusiastic about you and now uh, the light seems to have dimmed just a bit as if we've lost your love. Lord, I, I pray that you would grant us during this moment, just this time while we're here right now, that you're going to speak to our minds and to our hearts. And that as you do this, that there's going to be a difference made because we were here. Not to check off attendance to church, but because we have worshipped you and we have met with you in your holy word. So would you speak now? We invite you to do so. And we look forward to what you want to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you hate to lose? We all do. I hate to lose. I admit it up front. I hate, hate, hate to lose. Sometimes I hate more losing than I love winning. You may be the same way. But there is something about loss. It can be losses that are not that severe, and uh, they're inconsequential. We know that. Uh, They cause us inconveniences. We lose our keys. Maybe we lose our wallet. We lose something that's very much important, but it's not going to devastate us. But there are other things that do devastate us that we lose. We can lose a job. We could lose, say, a loved one. You lose a loved one? You're going to feel it. And we hate loss, and rightly so. Whether it's an item, whether it's a person, relationship, we hate losing. If it's a game, we, hate, we just hate losing. Well, you know, we weren't designed to lose. We were designed to win. Our creation, the way we were created, was to win constantly. But the thing called the fall, sin, that now has affected every one of us, causes us to have to lose, but we don't have to lose anything and everything, certainly not. They're great wins for us. I would suggest to you that the greatest loss of all losses for a fallen people, like we all are, sinful people, is the loss of God's love. Now, when I say that, It would maybe sound as if I'm talking about you could lose your salvation. Well, hopefully you know better than that. Once you're in a love relationship with God, you never, ever can lose it. Maybe you never had it and were deceived that you did have it, 
But if you do have it, you're never going to lose it. Never, never, never. But there is a way to lose things we never have. We can lose a game that we've never won. We've not won it, therefore we say, well, we've lost, but we lose something that we never even got. We never got the victory, but we lost it. The same is true with God. We can lose something that is so vitally important, we call it the love of God, and we lose because we never, never get it. We can also lose what we would call the love of God. That is a true love that you and I may have for God, but now we can say it has diminished. It's not what it used to be. It's not what it should be. I've lost the love of God. Not his love for me. I've lost my love for him. Loss of love. Do you know in the fall of mankind, we learned to lose, and it was the very first thing. It's just kind of like math. If you're in the earliest schooling in math, you learn to add and subtract. There's nothing more, ma more minor than just adding and subtracting. In the fall of mankind, it's the same for you and me. The first thing we learn to do is to add to God and to subtract from God. It's the basic of our problem, the very basis. It's at the very, very, very foundation. That's why God comes along with what we call the Ten Commandments and the first two of the Ten Commandments. If you're brand new with us for the first time this week, you need to know we're in a series, and the series is called The Lovable Law. It's on the Ten Commandments. And I call it The Lovable Law because that's exactly what it is. It is not a love to say, it's not a law that says, oh gosh, I got to keep these things and I know it's going to restrict me and my freedoms are going to, no, 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 no. When you really understand the law, you know that it is a set of love stipulations for the relationship between God and his people. That's all it is. They're love stipulations. Just as in a marriage, you would have stipulations, the greater you keep those stipulations, the better the opportunity for love, the more you violate those stipulations, the harder to keep a growing love. The same is true with God. So he gives us ten commandments. If we understand them correctly, we have the attitude of David when he writes, Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. How I love thy law. It is a lovable law. Now, this series of the Ten Commandments, we've already gone through Commandment 1. Now, Commandment 1, so you can understand its distinction from law number 2, is simply this. Law number 1, don't add to God. You shall have no other gods. Don't add to God. Number 2, you should not have any idols or any images of God whatsoever. Why? Because anything that you use to represent God is going to subtract from God. Law number one is going to tell us who we're to love. Law number two is going to tell us how we are to love. So there should be no problem now for you and me for the rest of our lives in the Ten Commandments to understand how these two laws are distinguished one from the other. One is an adding to God, one is taking away from God. Now, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles, whether electronic or 
or hard copy, doesn't matter, but I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. In our text, we're going to read law number two, and I want us to understand the law. I'll make that very simple to you. I already have for the most part. We'll say another word or two about what it means. But then we're going to spend our time talking about why. Why does God give us this law not to subtract from God? So let's read Exodus chapter 20, and let's begin with verse 4. For you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what he is doing is he is for forbidding representation. Nothing that would represent him don't use it. Now, that can be misleading. There are many people who assume by the reading of the text, if you've got a cross around your neck right now, you violated this commandment. There are people who would say that uh, if you have artwork in your home, and certainly anything that might depict Jesus as a piece of art, now you violated the second commandment. That is not true. What we need to understand is that we are not to have graven images, meaning something that we are to use in order to serve or to enable us to worship or serve God better, as opposed to a piece of art that depicts one aspect of the work of God, whether it be his life or whether it be, you know, his death. Those are pieces of art. They are perfectly fine. Unfortunately, in the last few hundred years, the church, which has really been the, the, the kind of the, the keeper of the arts, has now given over the arts to the world, and the church says, oh, art, I'm not sure about art. Nothing wrong with good art of the things of God. But when we use them to enhance our worship in any form or fashion, now we've crossed the line that is forbidden in this. So we ask, well, what's the big deal? I mean, wouldn't you agree that if you've got someone that's important to you, that you love a lot, and you don't get to see them, or maybe they're deceased, don't you, don't you just love to take a picture and, and look at the picture? That's good. It, it kind of, it, it, there's just something that happens just by looking at the picture and the remembrance of the love relationship that's there. Don't you just love it? somebody you, you, you truly care about to, to be able to touch and hold if it's your, your spouse or your child or a parent? Whatever. You, there's just something about touching and holding. And, and so why does God come along and he says, now, yeah, no, none of that stuff. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I know you enjoy it. I know it's, it seems to be very helpful for you, and I guess it is for you and what you do, but uh-uh, not with me. Why would he do that? And that's what we want to look at. And so if you have your insert, you can see three different reasons. We'll walk right through those. Let's see if it doesn't make sense once we've looked at them. Number one, 
Idols and images do not adequately represent God. Now, we all know the little statement, pictures say more than a thousand words. We know that. And that is true in a material world. It is not true in the spiritual realm. God is not material. God is spiritual. He's a spirit. And in this particular realm, let me tell you, a picture says much less than words. And God knows that. And we're so used to the material world and what, and what the ability to, to see and the images and all that and what they do to touch. Oh, that's great in the material world. But he says, nah, you don't want to do that in the spirit world. Why? Because anything that we can form to use to do that will be reductionary. Reduce, reduction. It's taking something grand, God, and we try to depict it, and all we can do is come up with something far, far less. Pictures in the spiritual world or in the spiritual realm, they distort words. What happens is God is cheated, certainly, and that we see him not as he is, but as something totally different. And we get cheated because now we're, we're worshiping a God that's far less than who he wants us to worship. So we, we all get cheated. And he says, so, hey, I'm for your good here. Law number two, no idols, no likenesses. And I'm talking about likenesses of the true living God. None at all. Now, there are two kind of images. Quickly, let's look at both of them. First are physical images. We're familiar with those. Physical images, statutes, icons, and so forth. And we're talking about in the use of worship. Maybe the best way to illustrate it is through the story in Exodus. In uh, chapter 34 or so, you've got, you've got this man, Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. Moses has been chosen of God to be the leader at this time of Israel. He has now been summoned in the presence of God as the Ten Commandments have just been given, and now they're going to be, the, uh, Moses is there to talk to him about that and to bring back the tablets and so forth. And so he stays away much longer, apparently, than the people of Israel were assuming, and they began to become afraid. What's happened to our leader? Did he get consumed by God? What's happened to us? What are we going to do now? We're out here kind of strung out with nothing. What, what, what goes on now? And they became somewhat nervous about what was going on. Fear began to take over. So Aaron says, okay, I'll tell you what let's do. We need some help here. We need to remember our God. So give me all of your, your earrings, jewelry, and so forth, and your gold. And, and, and they melted it down, and they formed a calf. Now, it's much better to understand this is a bull, not a calf. We always hear about the golden calf. Think of a golden bull. What they were doing was saying, we want to remember our God. In fact, look how it's put in Exodus 34. It reads like this. Verse 3, Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then he took this, he took this from their hand, fashioned it with graven tool, and made it into a molten calf. And they said... This is your God, O Israel, notice, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It was a true God who brought them up. What he's saying is this, this is not really your God, but this is to represent your God who brought you out of the land 
of Egypt. So if you can just focus on the strength of this bull, that's going to remind you how strong a God we have, and we're going to be okay. No foul, no big deal, huh? Well, apparently it was a big deal because God looks down upon what they're doing, and God burns with anger, it says. Then we see that Moses comes down, sees what's happening. He has the tablets. He's so furious in his angry anger, he throws down the tablets and shatters them. And then the people are required to melt that calf down and then to drink of that which was the calf. I mean, God is wrathfully angry. Their leader is so angry, shatters the very tablets of God, and everybody is sick to their stomach from having to drink all this. Let me tell you, a very bad day. A very bad day. Why such a bad day? Because God is saying, no. Do you understand what happens when you reduce me? I mean, think about it this way. What if God were having a conversation with Aaron? Maybe he did, and it's not recorded in Scripture. But what if he were to have a conversation? According to the teaching of God's Word, what he could say is this, is, hey, Aaron, what does a bull say? Aaron, we said, well, bull says you're strong. We need to remember how strong you are. God would have to come back and say, do you think that that bull represents to one degree, one percent, of the strength of me, the creator of this universe? And oh, by the way, hey, Aaron, what does that bull say about my compassion? What does it say about my mercy? Have you ever seen a merciful bull? No, 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 no. And he could go on and on and on saying, this is what it doesn't say. And what it does say does not say it adequately. So he would be saying, no, no, no. God would say, don't do that. You're reducing me to something that's going to be very non-representative of me. It's reductionary. I get hurt. You get hurt. Now, let's look at, secondly, the images that are not graven in material things, but are mental. Mental images. Mental images. Oh, by the way, before I speak to mental images, maybe let me just illustrate one other thought, and that is the use of crosses. When we built this facility, I can remember we didn't have these screens that are hanging right here. Uh, some of the old, old, old timers may remember that the screens were embedded in the flat walls that are behind them. And the, the design, I remember seeing them, beautiful. They had it designed that the screen would be in the middle and you would have the cross, the upright pieces and the, and the vertical pieces of the cross around. And there was a, a circular uh, trim that went around it to make this beautiful cross. And they would be in the, and it was so pretty on paper. But when they were built and put up there, they looked horrible. They were like made eyesores. It was so bad. And so we all agreed, take it down. Didn't bother me a bit. Didn't bother the people of our church, I don't think. But then people started coming as we opened the doors, and people started coming, and, and I heard it over and over. People say, where's the cross? I don't see a cross. And I say, well, we, we, don't, we don't have a cross. Well, then I can't worship here. 
I say, really, you can't worship here, why not? Well, there's no cross. How do you worship without a cross? And this would be my conversation, uh, hopefully a little bit nicer than may, may come out right now. But, but, <laughs> but I would say, really, you need a cross to worship? Yeah. I said, well, well, let me ask you this. Did you see any tombs hanging around here? What do you mean? Well, I know we, have a, we don't have a cross and you need a cross. Do you need a tomb in order to worship? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, do you know what a cross says? A cross says death. Do you know what? Death means nothing if there's no resurrection. So what about the resurrection glory of God? How do you worship without a tomb? Should we hang a tomb up here and a cross here? And are we going to? No, 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 no. In fact, what I'm really saying is, friend, you don't want a cross if you think you have to have a cross in order to worship because you've just crossed a line that's going to be very reductionary if you're using it to worship. If you just say, hey, I love art, and I just love the beauty of one, I just think it's pretty, I like it, I say, well, I understand, and that's, that's okay, yeah, that's, that's another story. We have no problem with crosses. We have one on the front of our, of our facility, as you see it. But the, the reality is we don't want to use crosses inappropriately. Now let's look at mental images. These are engraved on our minds. I think most common for you and me, I think our I don't think we're having so much problem with, with the physical images. I think for most of us, if we have any struggle in this arena, it's the whole area in the mental side of things. I think it's the most dangerous as well. There's a danger of visualization. Uh, visualization of, of Jesus in any form or fashion is not a healthy thing. Now, I'm, I'm one that takes walks a lot. And a part, if not all, of my walk will be into a very special area that I go that's become kind of a, a sanctuary to me. And it's a wooded area. And I walk through that, and when I get right to the entrance of it, I'll often stop and say, I know I've been talking to you, but Lord, I want to really have a good conversation now. I want to walk with you right now. Now, I am assuming the presence of God, but God's Spirit. What I don't want to do is say, now, let me look at you. Let me think of what you look like. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. No, now I've gone into a very dangerous area because I've now put a position of appearance to him that's going to be reductionary in some form or fashion, I'm sure. And I don't want to go there. I don't think it's going to be a very helpful thing, so we want to stay away. Danger of visualization. Do you know in the... Uh, through the years, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember in the 50s, there was kind of a traditional picture of Jesus. If you, if you remember that picture way, way back then, it was, it was Jesus as the uh, meek and mild one. The 60s come along, and it's kind of a time of revolution, and, and people are going, oh, no, no, we got it. And so the pictures of Jesus began to change, and he was kind of the revolutionary, the, the radical of types. Uh, then you got to the 70s, and in the 70s, it was, it was kind of more the macho Jesus, you know. And then it came to the 80s, and we need a buddy, we needed a friend, and it became the friendly Jesus. And, and uh, do you see what's happening is we're really just creating Jesus to be what, at that time, we're sensing our need to be. Just like Aaron said, oh, we need, we need to remember the strength of God right now, so let's image God in strength. It's reductionary. 
I thought it was fun. I, I put up a, I just got a bunch of pictures to put together on a collage here. Just some of the, the pictures. When you, when you put on pictures of Jesus, just go online. Man, they are all over the board. I mean, every kind of picture. But I'm sure whoever drew whatever picture was saying, this is my image. This is my image of Jesus. This is what I would like for him to be like, at least. And there they go. Now, that's not what we want to do. Very dangerous when we do that. I journaled these words as I was preparing the message. I said, we don't need pictures of God engraved in our minds. What we need is an understanding of God engraved in our hearts. And let me tell you, that's coming from knowing God as God has given us in his word. I'll close with that in just a minute. Let's look at number two. Number two, idols and images evoke the jealousy of God. Verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and so forth. I'm going to read the rest of that in a minute. So, but he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, you need to know that jealousy is not something that's good or bad. It could be either. If I'm jealous of somebody's success that's greater than my success, then that is a wrong jealousy. If you or I are in a marriage relationship and someone is flirting with our spouse, we should become jealous. Jealousy is a good thing. Then it is a byproduct of love. That's what he's referring to here. It is a very, very good jealousy. What he's saying is, I don't want anybody flirting with, if you were here last message, my mannequins. I don't want you flirting with mannequins. It's going to hurt you, and it does an injustice to me. So you don't want to do that. Look at Exodus 34. Verse 14 says, For you shall not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous. So he goes so far to say, Hey, you want a nickname for me? Call me Jealous. Because I'm a jealous God. Look at Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23, it says, So watch yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. You remember covenant from the first week? Because covenant is the marriage relationship. This is where the love was, was actually stabilized through covenant which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. So if he wants to define a jealous God, he says a consuming fire. There it is, a jealous God. I mean, God is so serious about protecting his identity because of his love. He's a jealous God. Count that good. Number three, idols and images negatively impact future generations. Now, let's finish the text we were just reading. And look what it says. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what we need to understand here is that this is simply describing the consequences, hear this, the consequences of reductionism. This is not God saying, I'm going to punish your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren because of what you have done. 
Not at all. He's simply just describing the reality that bad parenting in whatever form, and this form particularly, bad parenting in this way, by depicting before your children the wrong view of God, is going to have adverse consequences on your children that can go into the next and the next generation. It's kind of like, let's say, divorce. I come from a divorced family, and so I understand that it's true that when two parties break a relationship and they divide that family, then children have negative consequences. Now, there are some stories that are fabulous stories of how, but, but as a rule, don't you know it's true that I know I experienced consequences from my parents' divorce. I'll be the first to admit it, and, and some that I just hated, but it was there for me because of, of the consequences. It's not that I'm punished for something that I did, but I'm part of a family in which this takes place. And what he's saying is, you need to know this, that you're giving a wrong view of God to your children can be one of the most debilitating things that we can do to our children. Kids readily embrace. They see the things that we fear, and they'll start having those same fears. We won't even understand, but they'll have the same fears. Or you see the things that we delight in. We delight in pleasure. Well, they may not pick the same form of pleasure, but they're going to go, hey, I just saw that that's what made my family happy, was pleasurable activities. It wasn't the worship of God. It wasn't things. That it, it just it seemed to be it was the activities they got so jacked about, more excited about the game, more excited about the sport, more excited about the business, more excited. And you know what? That's kind of what I find myself most excited. I'm having to fight it because... That's just what seems to be there. And so we have to be very, very careful, obviously, with our children. None of us are perfect. It's going to happen to all of us. But what God is saying here is, look, please, I'm giving you this commandment because I want you to see me as I really am. And the more you do that, you're going to impact in a positive way your children. It's not just the negative. It's the positive. Your kids are going to grow up, and they're, they're not going to fear the things they shouldn't fear. Uh, they're not going to love things they shouldn't love in the same way. They just pick up those things from us as parents. Now, there are two very common views of God, often depicted by the names. We'll look at the first one being Godfather deity. Godfather deity. And I'm not talking about the Godfather in churches where, you know, some churches have, okay, would you be my child's Godfather or whatever. Uh, we're talking about... Uh, Godfather, as we would talk about in, uh, in the mafia, all right? I'm, we're not talking good. We're talking bad. It's the Godfather, the one that, you know, oh, ooh, scared of that. Ooh, he'll, he'll nail you in a minute. He'll put you away if he doesn't like what you're doing. And that's what I'm talking about. And let me tell you, kids that see God in that way, because they see their parents seeing God in that way, oh, they're going to fear God. And I'm not talking a reverential fear, fear. I'm talking about the fear of just, I'm scared of him. I just want to stay away. Watch what happens. You'll see those same kids with just the, the, a sense of believing that God is displeased with them. And they have to earn and work hard to make sure they stay in favor with the Godfather deity. 
I want to beware of that. The other side of that, the reverse of that would be the, the grandfather deity. Grandfather, you know what grandparents do. I mean, grandparents are soft, right? How many grandparents discipline their children as well as their parents do? Now, we have some reverse culture going on, and I know where we in our culture would, and do it, but, but we still don't do it with our grandkids too much. It's kind of like, well, that's the parents' job. They do that. I'm, what's my job? My job is to spoil those rascals as much as possible. Now, there are the things. I mean, if a grandkid comes up to me and says, can, and before they say, I say yes before they even ask. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, what is it you want? Now, there are certain things that my, my kids know that you don't do. I mean, certainly you want to respect things like my kids. I don't want them to eat this, or I don't want them to do this, and, I, you know, and so forth. And, of course, as good parents, you say to your kids, that's acceptable, and I understand that. Then they leave, and you do exactly what you want to do, and they have no <laughs> clue what you give those kids. Now, you want to do it when the kids get a little bit older where you can negotiate with them and say, don't ever let your parents know that I did, you know. But that's the grandfather. That's the grandparent. It's the idea that, oh, soft, easy, good, kind. That's grandparents. And that's the way a lot of kids are seeing God because they're saying, you know what, I see God as kind of sweet and tender and nice and good, and all he's going to do is the things that I want him to do, and I can talk him into anything. All i got to do is ask him. Watch what happens to the moral purity of kids that grow up with that view of God. It's not very pretty. Watch what happens to these kids. I'm telling you, it's just, it's just if God's there to accommodate my wishes. I shared this story this last Monday night at Monday Night for Men for the groups that uh, come and gather on Monday night to do their discipleship group. And we have a little time together, and I speak to all the men for a few minutes beforehand. And we're now, as you know that are in the journey, we're looking for three weeks at the character of God what a rich study and so we're talking about that and I said man I want you to know this don't ever forget this and I want you to know this and kids listen to this carefully a person's view of God will shape their way of life your view of God will shape your way of life that's why it's so critical that's why God puts this commandment number two it is that critical you want a good view of God I never forget when I was when I was at uh, Alabama, I was uh, having a ministry among athletes there, and we were ministering in the athletic dorm, and, and several athletes had come to faith, and they were changing, and the lives were changing, and the, the guys in the dorm were kind of seeing it, and there was debates, and this, that, and that going on. And, and so they asked, they said, well, let's, let's put together kind of a little debate. And so I was to kind of be the spokesperson for our group, and this other guy was for their group, and we ended up in a room with 20 or so guys, and I mean these guys were viciously against God. I couldn't believe just how arrogant they were about the things they were saying as related to God. And, and so finally, one guy was railing on God so badly, I stopped him. I said, i got to ask you something. Please just tell me. Do you have any concern that when you die, and you know you're going to die at some point in life, that the day you die, that you might just face that God, and when you face that God, that you're going to see him before the presence of God in uh, the gates of heaven, are, does that not concern you at all? And he shot back at me and he said, not in the least. If there is a heaven and there are gates and God's standing in front of the gates and God tells me that I can't come in, that's fine with me because I'll run over God, I'll break down the gates and I'll take over heaven if I have to. I'm not concerned. 
whoa. Would it be interesting to track how he developed his view of God? I tell you what, he didn't see him as the jealous God. He didn't see him as the consuming fire. He may have seen him as a molten calf, but he didn't see him as almighty God. That's for sure. And that's the problem. We have got to be careful, parents, because our view of God is going to shape their view of God. Now, having said that, let me close with this question. It's a quick answer. The question, so how do we see God as he is? There are two simple answers to that from Scripture. One is nature. Romans chapter 1, it gives us the answer to the importance of nature. In verse 19, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Through what has been made. There's something about nature. There's something about me getting out in that walk and getting under some wooded area and being able to look up and say, boy, Lord, that tree right there, that is pretty impressive. Way to go. Look at that little squirrel and just stare at a squirrel for a minute or two and say, well, look at that little rodent. <laughs> Whatever it is, you've done some amazing things. You know, it's interesting. There is an apple tree. It's a little, a little apple tree that's just stands there by itself. And now for years, I have an everyday occasion that I walk, and I walk multiple days a week. I go up, and I take one of the lower limbs, and I look at it before there's any apple, nothing there. And I see a leaf as it begins to grow, and I see the leaves come alive. And then I see a little tiny speck, and I say, that's amazing. You're going to make an apple out of that, aren't you? And then I see it and see it and see it and see it until... I pick the last apple off that tree. And I take that apple and I hold it and I say, this is pretty amazing, Lord. I remember when this was not even in existence. Look what you've done. I have a theory. Why is the South the Bible Belt? I don't know the answer for sure. But maybe it has to do with in the South it's warmer. And in the warmth we get outside more. And we see the nature. And because we're basically a redneck people, more f fishermen and so forth, and we're outdoors and they're, you know, tilling the property and the land and so forth. And let me tell you, they may not be people who know God and love God, but they're God-fearers. In the good sense, they're God-fearers because they've seen the God through nature. Parents, the kids that are always inside and on their electronic machine, and don't let them outside. Take them on the trips. It's hard for us in this, in this world in which we live, but... Get them to see the world. The more you see the world, the better they'll see God. The other, the second, far outstretches the importance of the first, and that's God's word. No doubt, God's word. In Exodus 34, Moses says, okay, God, I need to see you. I got to see you. He says, nope, you're not going to see me. I'm going to pass by, but you won't see me. And look what he says in Exodus 34, 6. He says, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There's no period there. 
See, that's what many of us would hear and say, yes, that's what I want to hear. But see, that's why he needs to speak, because a picture won't say enough. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He saw God as he was. And he said, if now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. He's asking for grace. And do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin. He understood how sin was dealt with. It has to be pardoned. You don't just earn or merit it to be taken away. He just says, would you just pardon? You know our iniquities are great. Would you just pardon it? Seeker, that's how you become a Christian. And then take us as your own possession. And then he takes us into his family and he treats us as righteous as he treats his own son who is righteous. That's the good news of the gospel right there. You see, this commandment, folks, is an important one. And he says, I don't want you touching and seeing all that. Ah, except I'll give you this exception. And that is the sacraments. But know this, you're not to see me in the sacraments. You're to remember what I've done because of the sacraments. But it's the only thing that has material to it that I'm going to allow you. And let me tell you, the more you touch it, the more you see it, the more you smell it, the more you use it, all the better it is. Keep that in mind. Folks, please don't think God gave a second commandment simply because he wants to restrict us for some strange reason. No, 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 no. He's saying, I don't want you to subtract from me because you lose. And you lose in the biggest loss of life. So don't take it away. Would you do this? Would you get in God's word? See him as he is. You that are part of Perimeter Church, you make your way into TFL, Theological Foundations for Leaders. And get to meet God in a study of the awesome God. It'll take you deep. It'll be probably a little rough road. That's how you get to see God as he is. You look at all of God's word and find out what it has to say about him. That's why the journey has been so helpful to so many people. It's because we every year dig into God. You do not want a place to worship where you can feel what you want to feel and hear what you want to hear. You want to go where you meet God and see him as he is. Even if he's a jealous God, that means he loves. That's the great God we worship. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would allow us to see you as you really are. And we pray uh, those of us that are parents might show uh, to the next generation so they might to the next generation who you really are. And Father, we pray that as a result of that, that generations to come, even because we're here this day, will be benefited. We bless you, we thank you, and we pray in the great and strong name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.